I, I should bring greetings from Emmanuel Bible Church. We are not that far away. We're over there in North Hills, and if you guys are just used to being in Burbank only, um, North Hills is just uh, over in the San Fernando Valley. It's kind of near Mission Hills. It's in that area, and uh, what a pleasure to be with you guys. Burbank holds a special place in my heart. When Kathy and I were married, this is uh, 27 years ago. Yes, 27 years ago. Did the quick math in my mind. Um, our first place that we lived in was this uh, small apartment. I think it's called the Promenade. It's over by the mall behind, I think it's still the Holiday Inn. Is, the, is it the Holiday Inn off the five? Like we lived in that complex right there for a couple of years. And so uh, Burbank uh, reminds me of, uh, of our very humble beginnings. And so uh, what a pleasure to kind of come back and uh, spend some time with you guys. Um, this morning, we want to look at a passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. I make the joke that, you know, if you, if you have friends that are British, right, they always refer to um, the first and seconds as one and two. Oh, thank you so much. All right. So 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, if you don't mind. Um. But now, 2 Timothy 4, um, verses 6 through 8. Now, Kempis asked me, because my thing is, I'm willing to preach whatever, if there's something that, that you would like me to address. And, and uh, um, Kempis asked me to talk about a particular um, time in my life, in particular. Um, I said in particular twice, which is weird. But uh, um, he asked me to speak to, uh, to you about a time in my life that was uh, a, a a kind of a desperate moment, and uh, desperate in the sense that um, that it was a, a time where health issues got to a critical point. And I think he asked me to preach on this partly because um, it was a time. This was back in like uh, two thousand and uh, was it two thousand and I want to say nine. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Right, two thousand nine. Might have been two thousand four. I can't read my writing, to be honest. That, that's like I'm struggling with that. But uh, I think Kempis was at uh, the Master Seminary, and I was preaching in the chapel. And I addressed um, the, the issue of, uh, of my liver cancer at that time, and, uh, and I addressed it from this particular text. And so um, I thought I would share that with you. And so the, the title of this message this morning is Finishing Well. And immediately, as I've kind of said a few lines about why I preach that particular passage on that particular chapel, you probably guess as to why the title, Finishing Well. I, I would encourage you because um, I think we are, uh, we are, in terms of our Christian lives, naturally and understandably committed to serving the Lord to the best of our ability and enjoying the blessings that he pours upon us. But we often forget, it, because of the limitations of our pride, because of the natural eagerness of our, of our desire for, for leisure, for consumption, for ourselves, even though we are pursuing spiritual things, we fall into this assumption that everything that we experience in life will go on in terms of its maximum value, its best experience, its, its, uh, its, its fruitfulness for myself, my life, almost indefinitely. When we know for a fact that's not the case, we are mortal. 
And in this life, we have a terminus. Terminus. That's a good word, good vocabulary word, um, if you're thinking about words. Um, terminus means that there is an end, and it's usually used in reference um, to a direction or to a travel. We have a terminus in this life. And for Christians, of all people, who know that there is another chapter, a greater chapter, a future chapter, an eternal chapter to come, we ought to live in light of the fact that this life, as we presently know it, it'll come to its final stop, its final destination. So 12 years ago, so it was 2009, 12 years ago, um, I preached this message um, at a chapel because uh, I had found out just a few weeks prior to that chapel message uh, that I had liver cancer. And so that, that was a significant thing and, and uh, quite a change. I was uh, um, about 40 years old at that time, and I thought, wait a minute, Lord, I, I know that I'm mortal, but I didn't know 40 years was all I was going to get. And, and the, 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 the things, the thoughts, the experiences that rushed through my mind, the first thing immediately, right, we had, we had recently had that year our fourth child. He was not a year old, and I thought to myself, I have four kids and a wife. What will happen to them? I'm a pastor of a, of a small church, a congregation that I love, that I poured my affection and love into at that time for so many years. What will happen to them? There's so many things that I had hoped to do that I will not get an opportunity to do. What will happen to all your aspirations and dreams? And it was so emotional. I remember that when I got that diagnosis, I just cried out to the Lord, and I started just, just crying. And uh, if, you, if you know me at all, and you can just tell by my rugged good looks. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, a, an easy crier. I don't, I don't cry about, oh, my finger. Like, that's not me, right? And so just in my quiet moments with the Lord, I was overwhelmed with the notion that the Lord may call me home already. And not for fear of what is to come. I was absolutely convinced of what was to come for me. But everything that I was not prepared for in terms of what I was going to leave behind. And for, for weeks, um, my wife Kathy and I, we couldn't, we couldn't look at each other in the face. I don't know if you guys have ever had that, that difficult, you know, very mortal crisis where you guys, um, you know, are, are anxious about, you know, each other's health and you know, you're just trying to go through your normal day. Like, you know, you're cooking and cleaning and doing all the things that you do around the house. But if you catch each other's eye, like the tears start to flow and you have to look away. That's exactly the kind of the moment that I found myself as I was thinking of what to preach for chapel. And that's what drew me to this particular passage. This is, um, if you look up, um, you know, um, um, uh, a commentary or some scholarly work, they will call this portion of, uh, of 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, they'll call it Paul's valediction. But if you don't know what that means, that's fine. I don't know what that means. That just It basically means that it is his farewell statement. And it really is. It's his farewell statement, knowing full well that his life is about to end. And he is giving this, this valediction. He's giving this farewell statement, this, this word of this is how it will end for me, to Timothy, his protege, and, and 
by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, he has given that to us. So that we might think how we should spend our years in this life until the Lord draws us home. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to live in such a way that we are living in anticipation of our terminus. We are on this particular train, but that train will stop. And we're going to get off when we get home. And if we don't live in light of that, every anxiety, every fear, every nervousness, right? It will cripple you. It will hold you back. It will limit your capacity to serve the Lord as you should. That's when we have to live in light of our terminus, of the farewell. So this message is about finishing well. Let me read to you verses 6 through 8, and then we'll seek to try to unpack it together. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8 reads this way. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed or who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures this morning, we thank you for the worship team and how they have led us faithfully in proclaiming your goodness, that our God is indeed great. And amazing things you have done, the most amazing being that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to take the wrath of God in our place. So that if we would place our faith in him and him alone, we might be free from all the bondage and the limitations of this life. Lord, as I address this congregation, Lord, thank you for this congregation, for this gospel life, for this church and its great history. We pray a blessing upon them that they would flourish and grow and they would reach this community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That much would be accomplished. And as they do all that they are meant to do as a church and as the body of Christ, this morning remind them that they really have a singular purpose. That all the other things they may be good at, sports, arts, work, Leisure, they're all a subset of faithfulness to our master. And may that be the, the resounding truth that feeds our souls this morning, Lord. Help us to think of the end so that we might prepare to finish well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Let me give you a little bit of statistics because that always helps me to kind of put in perspective um, what has to take place um, Liver cancer, right? I'll give you some statistics about that. If uh, you're diagnosed with liver cancer, that is not a good thing. Um, fortunately for me, that was something because I was born in South Korea, uh, emigrated to the United States when I was three. Nevertheless, in my generation, there was not a vaccine for hepatitis B. And um, the vast majority of Asian-born individuals in my generation um, were exposed to hepatitis B. And I was not, you know, I was not different from most. But Contrary and different from the rest of my immediate family, I was the one that it affected my liver. 
And so praise the Lord that that was diagnosed fairly early. And because of that, they kept giving me tests and constantly, yearly, doing evaluations. And as a result of that, they caught my cancer early. Because listen to the statistics about someone that's diagnosed with liver cancer. Because I want to say so much about the liver, and I shouldn't. Because, you know, that you don't care. And that's okay that you don't care, right? I care, but you, you, don't, you don't need to care for us to be brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It's no big deal. But it is crazy strong. Can I just say that? It is straight, so strong that you could cut away two-thirds of it, and it will grow itself back. I don't know any, my, you can't cut off my arm and two-thirds of that and that grow back, right? That, that is a crazy strong organ, and you need it absolutely to survive. And there is no mechanism, no machine, no dialysis, nothing that could replace its function in your life. Your liver goes bad, your entire physical existence goes bad, right? Here's the statistics. If the liver cancer is uh, localized, meaning it's confined to just the liver, the five-year survival rate is 28%. Now, in baseball, that might be all right, right? 280, right? But in real life, that's not the kind of odds that you're hoping for. That's, that's in five years, uh, you know, your mortality rate is 28%. If the liver is regional, that it's starting to spread, but st- spreading only to like nearby organs, maybe to the colon or to the stomach, etc., then your five-year survival rate is only 7%. Five-year survival rate is only 7%. If liver cancer is spread to distant organs and to distant tissues, we usually refer to that as stage three. Stages tell you how far the cancer is spread in your body. Stage three, particularly stage four, then you don't speak about a five-year survival rate. You talk about the survival time being as low as two years. The liver is a significant thing. My wife is a nurse practitioner, and so as soon as she finds out I have liver cancer, she, to her detriment, does all the research, and she knows exactly the statistics I'm sharing with you. So it was a very difficult time. But again, not because I feared what was to come. I mean, what is to come is absolutely, right, set in stone because I am in my Savior's hands. But what we leave behind and what we leave, live for in light of the end is what we want to address. So let, let's, let's look at verse 6, right? Verse 6, and this is our first point. I would encourage you, and I think this is what Paul means in, in his first statement of his valediction. He's, he's trying to say, spend your life well. Particularly, spend your life well by way of your worship or devotion. Look at verse 6. It says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So he begins with this idea of being poured out as a drink offering. It's an interesting thought, right? The, the, the drink offering, um, well, let's start with the pouring out. The pouring out is, uh, is a metaphor that I think we'll immediately understand, right? If I took this bottle of water and I began to pour it out, it tells us a couple things. At some point, it will reach its terminus, its end. The last couple of drops will pour out, and then is there water in the cup or in the bottle? No, it's done. So immediately, we kind of get what Paul means by the pouring out part. He is coming to the end. He feels like his life has been spent. And spent is the term I want you to kind of put inside your mind. We spoke already about the concept of stewardship. 
not that I have, right? Our brother that came up and spoke to you about stewarding of your financial giving. Stewardship is about recognizing that all that we have is for us to spend out according to the Lord's purpose. Your life is that. Your life isn't for you. And listen, you are the worst version of your Christian life whenever you self-focus and think of, well, what do I get out of this? Or how is this protecting my freedoms, my rights, my desires, my hopes, my aspirations, my dreams? I could have gone to the Lord and said, Lord, you can't give me cancer. I want to see, like, grandkids. That's really important to me. What's your problem, right? Like, I, I want to be able to eat more of these good foods that I like. I love Korean food. I'm Korean. I love Korean food. I guess that's not weird. But I, I want to enjoy some of the things that, Lord, I've never taken Kathy anywhere. In all of our ministry, we, we haven't traveled that much. We have for some mission things, right, overseas a couple of times. But I want to show us that. I want us to experience things. Lord, I expect my life to go a certain way. For some of you guys, it might be struggling with singleness. Some of you guys, it might be struggling with trying to have children. Some of you guys, it might be with the unbelieving, right, the lack of faith of your children or your grandchildren. It might be your workplace situation. There are so many things. And once we are self-focused, we are the worst version of our Christian lives when all we're thinking about is, how can I keep this as full as possible? How do I live as long as possible and enjoy as much as possible until it's all gone? When in fact the Lord would have us to think, Paul would have us to think, this is meant to be poured out. And not just poured out like, Lord, I'm just going to, where is the most dangerous place I could go to? I'm just going to pour it out all at once. I'm, I'm not going to pour it. I'm going to explode. I'm just going to go and just blow up my life, right? Now, he says, I am being poured out. But he specifically says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And that's something that you don't hear every day. You might read it in Paul. He, he mentions it not just here, but he mentions it in Philippians as well. But by saying that he's being poured out, one, there's a, there's a closing finality. He is placing emphasis on the idea is that he is coming to the end of his life force, the end of his usefulness. His stewardship is about to stop. This is the final seconds in his game. Right? And time is about to expire. He recognized that, so he's being poured out. But the idea that he's being poured out as a drink offering adds a different and a, and a deeper dimension to it. It's not just that he knows that he's at the end of his life. He's at the end of a life that he has desired to use unto the worship service of the Lord. See, a drink offering in the Old Testament was when you take um, a fourth of a hint of wine. You don't need to know how much that is. It's a good amount of wine. You take a little pitcher of wine and you would pour that out. And the reason why you would pour that out is because it was valuable. The drink offering wasn't water. Why wasn't it water? Well, because listen, the idea was not to kick it, take a pitcher, go to the local stream or to the lake and grab some and then pour it out near the altar. The, the idea was to bring something that's of value to you. And the excellent worshiper, they would bring choice wine. They would bring something that wasn't like, oh man, this wine is getting old. You, you could tell I don't drink because that's probably the reverse, right? Like if it's old, it's probably better, right? It's, it's my bad, right? So if you like taking something that is precious and pouring that out. 
It is to give of something that matters, that has some kind of some kind of girth in terms of its value to you, and that's what you're pouring out. It was an offering unto the Lord. It is usually an accompaniment to the whole burnt offering, and is often offered. It was offered on a daily basis at the temple, um, and on Sabbath and on feast days, etc. But you get the point. Paul draws on a metaphor that makes sense. He doesn't say that I feel like my life energy. My value and my stewardship is coming to an end. It's like I'm being poured out like water. Now he's letting you know that there is a value to the life that he gets to live. And that value has to do with him serving the God that has rescued him despite his sinfulness. And so he's saying, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He's saying everything that is part of what I am, as I'm coming to my terminus, as I'm coming to my end, I realize that it has been an act of worship, prioritizing devotion and service to our God. I am offering my life to the Lord. And the Lord has deemed that my time is coming to its end. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Look at the second phrase. And the time of my departure has come. I like the way that he phrases that. The time of my departure has come. What he means by that is the appointed departure. It's time for me to get off the train. That appointment is coming very soon. See, he he speaks of a departure, which is a phenomenal idea. The word is used sometimes of loosening the ropes of a tent. Right or loosening the mooring ropes of a ship, and you get both of those. You know, if you if you like going camping, um, then when do you loosen the ropes of the tent? When you're about to go to sleep? No, you do it when you're packing up to leave. Right? That's it. See, we, I'm going to go home, and so our tenting adventure is over. The temporary housing is done, and I will go back to my home. See, see the analogy there? Right or the loosening of the moorings of the rope, you are you are docked at a you know your ship is docked and it's about time for you to sail for you to depart and so you see why this word is translated departure it means that you are letting the ropes loose so that you can go the appointed time of his of his departure is here and I keep saying the appointed because I want you to recognize the time of his departure has come Paul is not saying. I am choosing to leave now. He's not saying I've decided to depart, picking up the ropes, packing up for home. No, he's saying well, his part was to pour out himself as an act of worship, as a drink offering, and this appointed departure, the time that God has designated for him to go home, that time he knows is coming quickly. Why was that valuable to me back 12 years ago? Because I was convinced, if I was convinced of anything, it was this. God is still sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. And it could be that this was my time to go home and be with him. But cancer was not going to be the thing that kills me. Right? Cancer was not going to be the thing that, that ushers, right? That, 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 that ultimately determines when I depart. The Lord was. Do you realize that? Listen, I look around, I see a lot of gray hairs, and welcome to the club, right? <laughs> glad, you're, glad you're here. Um, and realize, as we're getting older, right, um, 
there are so many reasons, especially in our culture today in the United States. There's such a culture of trying to preserve our life, drinking weird, you know, green and purple juices, right? Doing certain things. Listen, I, I'm, I, I don't mean that as... Uh, that could sound very critical of you. You know, drink those juices. If it, if it gets the gears moving, go do it. That's the, I'm absolutely good with all that. My point is, though, if you are an unbeliever, you might be consumed in our day and age with anything that would pro- prolong your life. The Christian, I think that's good stewardship. If you're trying to be healthy, you're taking walks, you know, you're cutting down on certain kind of eating Whatever that might be. I mean, that's fine. I have no problem with that. My point is, though, that in the end, what is going to usher in your terminus, your end? It's the Lord. And you will not live a day beyond the moment that he has declared that you will come home. But here's the other side of it that is so encouraging to us. We will not die a moment earlier that the Lord has sovereignly designated us to live. It's George Whitfield that once said, right, we are immortal until our work is done. That's a great statement, right? We should live with that. We should abide by that. We should know that the stewardship that God has given to us, that we can live in such a way that we should spend our life well in service to him, knowing that that life will go only as far as he has determined and will not be cut short unless he has determined. And all of it within the sovereign wisdom of a God that knows all things and that knows you and that loves you. So spend your life well, like a poured out offering, recognizing that there is an appointed departure to live in light of your mortality. Secondly, verse 7. Strain to finish faithfully. Look at verse 7. You, you have here three statements, all of them in the Greek perfect tense. Right? And that's come, you have that, that kind of construction. I have done this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. All of that saying that there's implications of this completed action. Paul is looking back on his life and he's saying, I have fought well. I have finished well. I have kept the faith well. It is not as strong as saying that Paul is commanding us to do the same, but he is saying, this is my testimony of my life. Timothy, let this be the testimony of your life, especially in in light of the end. Nam, brothers and sisters in Christ, let this be the testimony of your life that you strive for. In the last moments of the sunset of your living that we would have fought well that we would have finished well that we would have we would have kept the faith for the glory of jesus christ in all that we do now listen if if you're like me and you're kind of fond of sports man these are the kind of analogies that get you going right the olympics are coming that's a big deal to me um my my kids all grew up swimming Right, um, and uh, there, there are a couple of them that were pretty good. A couple of them that were, you know. But nevertheless, right, competitive swimmers, club swimmers, we enjoy it. So we watch. We've been watching the Olympic qualifying, right? We love that stuff, you know. 
I love the competition of stuff. And I love when the U.S. wins. I love that stuff. And when they don't win, it's like, well, I kind of like it still, right? right? But, right, you cheer for your team. You cheer for your guy. You love all of that stuff. And so here's the analogy. If that's you, you love that competition. You love the victory. This analogy is for you, right? Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. I'll just say a couple of things about that. One, the idea of good here is that it is excellent, noble, it's worthwhile. He is saying that I have battled and I battled well. What you don't see is in the Greek construction, he uses a noun that's for fighting, and then he makes a, uses a verbal form of that. So in our English, it would be something like, I have fought the good fight, right? Like that, that works. But let me put it in a different way, because you probably heard that phrase so often, it just kind of doesn't resonate as being kind of interesting anymore. It would be like saying, I have battled the good battle. I have wrestled the good wrestling. Or um, the word is the word that we get our word agony from. I have agonized that difficult agony. I have struggled with that difficult struggle. That's, that's what he's trying to, to, to give to us. And he, has said, he is saying that, that I have worked at whatever the Lord has given me. And it implies that life is not always easy for those that are trying to be faithful and to finish faithfully. So that's why I use the word strain, because I think that's what it is. I could have used battle. I could have used fought. But the idea is that it is not an easy thing. You are to fight the good fight. Paul is saying that he has fought the good fight, and that wasn't an easy thing for him. I have finished the race. That's a tremendous statement. The term for race here, and that's the right translation, it's, it's a race. Or, or a course, but the word in and of itself, used in its context, means race, certainly, but the word itself means that, that there is a course, a direction, and that direction has ended. And as you've heard probably countless times when we talk about the Christian race, this is not the 100-meter dash. I, I like the 100-meter dash, you know? Guys be flying. I mean, they're, woo, that's amazing, Right? They fly it, you know, like they'll clock guys, and this is just an aside, but it's interesting to me. Interesting to me. They, will, they will run at top speeds of like close to 30 miles an hour, just below that. That's outrageous, right? That's like your car driving through your neighborhood. They'd be like, oh, what's up, you know? Isn't that amazing? But that's not the Christian race. How do we know that? Because it's not about a sprint. It's about the long endurance. We had just used the illustration of fighting the good fight and now finishing the race. The, the emphasis here is on completion. Can I say this? In both of these, um, these sports analogies, or I mean, I'm using sports analogies, assuming that the fight is, is, is more of a boxing match, but it, it could be an actual you know, fight. Nevertheless, the idea of, of the intensity of what is taking place, I don't think, and Paul is not emphasizing, the victory. Do you realize that? What is he emphasizing here? The faithfulness to finish. See, he doesn't say, I have fought a good fight and I defeated those fools. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I raced that race and I smoked everybody. He doesn't speak of becoming first place. He doesn't speak about victory. He speaks about finishing well, about doing nobly, 
about assessing his life and going, man, I had some difficulties. I had some victories. In the end, I finished what God had given me to do on this route. Let me say this. Paul, as he's talking about this, he doesn't doesn't use the first person possessive. He doesn't say, I have fought my good fight. He doesn't say, I have fought my race or finished my race. But that's what is implied. Because he is saying, I fought a worthy fight, a noble fight. I have completed the course that God has laid out before me. What is implied there is that we have different courses. We have different fights. You have a different fight for me. If if it's not an issue with cancer at a young age, God bless you. I, I hope that that's the case. But there's other things. Family dynamics, relationships, your work situation, your lack of work situation, right? Marriage, the difficulties of marriage. I mean, we could just pile all those things in. And with all of those things, the implication is that God is faithful. He is good. He is worth pouring our lives out for in terms of devotion and service. But the task is difficult. That's why he uses the imagery of a fight. That's why he uses the imagery of a long-distance race. And his emphasis is not, you need to win. His emphasis is, you need to finish. God has given you all that you need pertaining to life and godliness. And he won't test or tempt you beyond what you are capable of. But he will test and tempt you. Not tempt you directly. Okay, let's keep our theology, right? But he will give us difficulties sovereignly in the course of our lives that mean that our life will indeed be a challenge. Your life of faith will be a challenge. It will feel like a fight. It will feel like a long-distance race. It'll feel like you need to give up. You guys know what I'm talking about when we talk about long-distance race, right? Mile 25, 24 in the marathon, and you guys are coming in knowing that, you know, there's only a couple miles left, and here I go, I'm going. You guys know what that feels like, right? Well, I don't. I don't. I'll be honest, I'm not that interested in knowing what that feels like. I imagine it's hard, right? Um, friends that have run the marathon, their toenails fall off. What is up with that? That, is not, that doesn't seem like something enjoyable, right? The point being, though, that he uses an analogy that we can all absolutely connect to, right? We fight. We finish. It's faithfulness. It's finishing. And to make sure that we understand that that's what we're talking about, right? Oops, did I miss one? There is a C that is missing from there, which is okay. I kept the faith. I kept the faith. Because of the use of the definite article there, I think Paul is talking about the body of truth that is the gospel in his life. He could mean it, right? And let me give it to you a few ways that he might mean that I have kept the faith. He might mean it like in 2 Timothy 2.15, where he talks about presenting yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In other words, he might mean that I have handled accurately, faithfully, the faith that has been given to me to handle. He might mean it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, that by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So he might mean the faith, the the, the clarity, the doctrinal clarity of the gospel to make sure that he keeps that doctrinal truth intact. He might mean that. Or it could be a combination of both of those, like in 2 Timothy 1.13, 
where he says, follow the pattern of sound words. He's talking about doctrinal truth that impacts the way that you live. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I think he kind of means all of the above. He is saying, I have kept the faith in that I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race that God has set before me. Your race is different from his. My race is different from yours. And he's saying, I've kept the faith. And again, the emphasis, I think, being on that keeping the faith is difficult. He wouldn't need to say, I've kept the faith if anyone that comes into faith is automatically keep the faith and it's really easy. He's saying, man, I fought, I finished, I preserved, or I persevered. And I think that's his emphasis. Again, faithfulness, not victory. Let me just say one thing about that, keeping the faith. There's a sense in which faith is easy. It's it's like what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So there's a sense in which trusting in Jesus Christ is easy, right? In that sense is the way that we say that, that salvation come, comes by faith alone. In other words, I don't need to earn Christ's favor. I can't. I don't need to deserve God's salvation. I can't. I need to recognize my sinfulness, my undeserving. Lay down the pride that says, I could fix this first, Lord. I can make myself better. And turn to the Lord and say, I will never be worthy of you. And I deserve the wrath of God. But I turn to you and ask that you would forgive my sins. And I trust in you that your payment for me might be sufficient. That's what it means to place our faith in Christ. So, so the placing my faith in Christ, that part is the, you find my yoke easy, my burden light. That's, in some ways, that's the super easy part. So why do we have such a difficult time in our Christian journey? Because we still struggle with sin. Faith is easy, but Jesus also said faith is hard. Matthew seven thirteen, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. What's easy? The way, the wide gate, the easier way that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So on the one hand, Jesus seems to be saying both. That on one sense, the trusting in him, because there is nothing more of what I do except to trust, to place my faith, to lean wholly upon him for salvation. That part in some ways is easy. Theoretically, it's easy. And yet, finding righteousness and staying on that path will come with some challenges. And that's what Paul is trying to address. He addresses in Romans 7 when he says, the very thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing. This is the struggle of the Christian life. I want to spend my life well in devotional service to him. I am straining, though, to finish faithfully. Because it's more challenging than simply theoretical, I just got to work hard and get this done, right? I'm in cruise control. It's like driving a Tesla on the freeway. Seen those guys? Did I fall into sleep and stuff? Just makes me want to get a Tesla, brothers. I mean, that's (laughs) fantastic, right? That someone could drive, like a computer could drive, that's fantastic. 
But that is not a good illustration of the Christian life. We are not in autopilot. You're struggling. Well, that's exactly where the Lord has decreed your life to be right now. And I'm not saying it's okay, like it doesn't matter, but I am saying, because I don't know what's going on. I'm saying that God has given us absolute evidence that he loves us. And you say, well, I don't feel it. Well, remember it. He sent his son to take your place in divine wrath. Listen, if he's willing to send his very beloved son to take your punishment, that's the proof that he loves you. I, I can't tell you why you're going through what you're going through. But I can absolutely, convincingly make an argument in Scripture that God absolutely loves you and has not forgotten you. You may be going through a period of time that is the worst thing you'll experience in this life. But let me remind you of this. The best thing you experience in this life cannot compare to the worst day that is to come in the life to come. There's a terminus. And sometimes it feels like, Lord, I'm looking forward to that final departure. And sometimes it feels like, Lord, I don't want to depart yet. There's so much to do. And regardless of where you are in that journey, don't worry, it's in the Lord's hands. It's not on you. So finishing well means spending your life well, straining to finish faithfully. And then finally, it means yearning for final victory. Yearning for final victory. Look at verse 8. Henceforth. Now that sounds very English. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Henceforth. Right? Yeah, I apologize. Some of you guys might be British, and that, that is not appropriate. I, I, I'm sorry. Right? I don't know my, why my voice goes up, and I get all, like, that's all weird. Right? Sorry about that. That's a bad impression. Verse 8. Henceforth. Now, that henceforth means that going forward. It literally means that which remains. But the idea is for what is left over. What, what comes next? What's after all of this? That's what the henceforth ushers in. So now what? Now that Paul has given to us an idea of our stewardship to be spent well in de- devotional service to the Lord, that we are to strain and to fight for faithfulness, not for victory. Victory is not yours. It's in Christ. And so we strain to be faithful to him. Henceforth, so now what? This is the now what? It says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. There is henceforth, or coming, right? There is a crown of righteousness that is to come. A final righteousness that is assured. He says, there is laid up for me, and that's, a, that's an interesting way to put it, because what things are laid up? Well, Colossians 1.5 says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So the idea of it being laid up for me, this crown of righteousness laid up for me, it implies a couple of things. One, it is in the future, it is not present. And don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. Scripture makes clear that once you have placed your faith in Christ, we are clothed, we are robed in Christ's righteousness. We are judicially, meaning as far as God the judge is concerned, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. 
There can be no greater righteousness than that. We have his righteousness, okay? So let's, let's make sure we understand that. But what we can say is there is an element of final righteousness. Because though, as a Christian, if you call upon the name of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have placed your faith in him, you are righteous before God. True? True and amen, right? But is it right to say that you have no struggles with unrighteousness or sin? We still struggle with sin in this life. So what Paul is referring to in terms of the crown of righteousness, that righteousness to come, that righteousness is the final, is the fullness, is the absolute sense of righteousness when there is no sinning on the inside or the outside and there's no struggle with sin altogether. That's what he's looking forward to. Can I say something about the crown of righteousness? I I think four, or depending on how you count them, um, there are five crowns mentioned in the, in the New Testament, the crown of life, the crown of glory, crown of, right, crown of righteousness, and a crown of rejoicing, right, if, if that's a crown. And then an imperishable crown, eh, right, I don't know, right? Nevertheless, there are five crowns that are mentioned as part of what we receive, our reward, when we go to be with him, when we get off the train. I don't think it's a physical crown. Now, if you have a different view of that, that's not, we don't need to break fellowship over something like that. But I don't think it's a physical crown. I think it's oppositional, meaning that I think by saying crown of righteousness, what he means is the crown, which is righteousness. In other words, you won't get an actual wreath or an actual crown that says righteousness across your head once you go, go, go meet the Lord face to face. I think what will happen is that the righteousness that we are clothed in in Christ permeates all of us. And we stop struggling with sin. That's what Paul is looking forward to. And he's saying, one, it is laid up for him. It's protectively stored. You notice that? That in a sense, we do have Christ's righteousness now. But in that day, we will receive the fullness of it, the finale of it. And it is laid up for us. Laid up for us by whom? I love this. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, not a Lord, right? But the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Now, a couple things that I love about that phrase. This final righteousness is absolutely assured. Why? Because the Lord is the one that is holding it and safekeeping it until we come home. I love that. But so, so that, that you might say, okay, so it's securely kept because if he's the Lord, none can snatch anything out of his hands, right? He is literally the Lord, not a Lord. He is the Lord. And there's no power that could even rival him in all of the universe. He is the power of the entire universe and it's in his hands. But here's the second part. How good is that righteousness? I mean, how righteous are we talking about? You know, pretty righteous. Very righteous, right? Because righteous can be kind of a relative term, right? I'm kind of righteous most of the time. The person that is holding your crown of righteousness to award to you is the judge of righteousness. Or your translation might say the righteous judge. And the point is this. Who determines righteousness? The judge does. And if he declares it as righteous... No one can argue with that. 
Not only is he the judge, but he is the righteous judge, or I, I like the ESV, the judge of righteousness. He's the guy that goes, let me see that. Yep, that's righteous, right? And he's the expert. Like, you, you hire an expert? Like, it, it, you know, we, we had to tent our house for termites years back. And it's because there's like this weird, like, mound of, I don't know, pellets, wood pellets. They were just like outside of our wall in one of the bedrooms. And I just thought, and I think that's termites. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't call my neighbor and go, hey, neighbor, what do you do for a living? Oh, you're a mechanic? Well, come over. This is termites, right? Because based on your recommendation, I'm going to tent the house and, and do all this stuff or not, right? No, I, I want the expert. I want the guy that knows how to look and examine stuff, uses sonar or pokey things or whatever he needs, right, to go, you know, yeah, that's, you got termites. You need to tempt this house. You want the expert, and there is no better expert than the judge. And not only is he a judge, but he's the judge of righteousness. He's the God that holds your righteous crown. That's how we know that when we get to that moment, that crown of righteousness that we receive, that is an absolute righteousness that, that we cannot fully fathom right now. I don't know what it's like to not struggle with sin to not wonder about my motives or to not struggle. Like, like we keep talking about sports because I love sports, right? I don't know what it's like to compete without this desire to be better than you. But we will. In the new heavens and the earth, I imagine there'll be games and sports and things that we do. Competition without self-glorification. I'll be honest, I don't know how to put my mind around that because my, my human limitations don't let me yet. But that will be righteous one day because the Lord, from whom nothing can be taken away, is holding your absolute and final righteousness in his hands. And if anyone would know righteousness, it's the judge of righteousness that knows righteousness. And he is awaiting you to depart. And he's awaiting Paul to depart. Yearn for that righteousness. It's a righteousness that is assured. It's a gospel hope that is shared. I love this last phrase. And not only me, not only to me, the second part of verse 8, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Isn't that great? Paul, Paul is reminding Timothy and reminding all of us that in the end, Paul wasn't just talking about his own life. He wasn't just talking about running his race, fighting his fight. He wasn't just talking about his departure and everything that is happening around him. He's not just talking about his final crown of righteousness that he will receive from the Lord of righteousness. He's saying, listen, my story is not unique. It is the same story that is shared with every person that places their faith in Jesus Christ. If you have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins and called upon him and trusted in him alone, this is what awaits you. What Paul is doing here, he's motivating all of us. He's reminding us that we are of that category. What category? That category of humanity, the way that he phrases it here, who have loved his appearing, who have loved the manifestation of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure if Paul means here, if he means that we have loved that Christ has come already, or if he means we love that he will appear again to us in full visage face to face. It could be either or both of those. I don't know. But I do know his whole point is that those who are desperate to know Jesus Christ 
every one of them has the same experience of hope, of the gospel hope that is right there waiting for them. So that even though our train is coming to its conclusion, we, towards the end, are anxious to get off. We're like, when is this train going to arrive? Because I get to be with him. I have loved his appearing. And I can't wait for the crown of righteousness where I stop struggling with sin. I love that Paul, his great intention in this passage as he looks towards the end of his life is not like, I cannot wait for glory. I cannot wait for the crown of love or joy. He's like, I cannot wait till I stop struggling with sin. That is the Christian's heart when we think of what is to come. And what is to come is to motivate us. We are to share this hope of gospel glory and righteousness. Antoine de Saint-Esprit is the author of The Little Prince. You guys know that book? He once said this, and I like it. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Now, if you're not catching that, right? Because if, if I were you, I might be tired of hearing my voice, and I might not be catching that. The point is this. We are to train ourselves and to train others to yearn for that departure to come, for the crown of righteousness awaiting us securely and absolutely, for us to be able to say, I wasn't perfect, I failed often, but I have finished my course. Man, I stumbled. Parts of it I had to crawl, but I finished my course. And I'm awaiting and looking forward to and yearning for that vast and endless sea, which is the righteousness that Christ will award me in that day. See, living, simply biological existence is not the point of our life. Living can be useful unto the glory of Jesus Christ and in his service, like a drink offering being poured out, stewarded well. It's not wrong to pray for health and for life. But we should all of us recognize that except for for Enoch and maybe Elijah, every sinful mortal will die. That's like 99.99999%, right? We will all pass. But what will we do with the life that we're given? Yearn for something that is of greater value than the, more, than the momentary desires of this world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my encouragement to you is to recognize that God has a date for you. Can I say it this way? He has an appointment for you. And there is no way of delaying that appointment. There's no way of bringing that appointment closer. There's an, appointment, there's a, an appointed time for your departure. Don't worry about when that moment is. Worry about this moment and what you do for him, living in light of that moment to come. Let us finish well. Let me close in some prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to us. 
for the gospel and for the life that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that our hope is not simply, Lord, um, wishful thinking like the rest of this world, but that our hope is certain, is absolute, is grounded and based on your sovereign love for us. So teach us, Lord, to lean in on you and on that gospel, to, to, to walk in a way that is a stewardship of your faithfulness to us. Help us to be faithful in small and in great. If we have failed, Lord, help us to repent, to, pick up, to be picked up by you and to walk forward again. And Lord, I pray for this church, for these brothers and sisters here, pray that you would help them to live faithful lives so that together we might have great cause for rejoicing one with another until that day comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.